This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Uh, we said a special prayer for the soldiers of Israel in the synagogue. We always say a prayer for the, for the soldiers of Israel, but we said a special prayer where we specifically added the names out loud of soldiers related to members of the congregation or close to members of the congregation. And it was a very long list. Prayer took a long time. Over the next several weeks, we are going to feature special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war here at the Bulletin, in part to cover events as they unfold, but even more so to try to understand what's happening in the larger context, history, how we got here, and how this affects Christians around the globe and their neighbors. In a sense, what we're asking is, what does faithful presence look like in a moment that's already proved to be so bloody and horrible and so divisive and polarizing around the world? Joining me for this episode to begin this conversation is Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik. He serves the Shirith Israel Congregation at the Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue in New York City, the oldest synagogue in the United States. Rabbi Soloveitchik is also the director of the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought at Yeshiva University. He's the author recently of a book called Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, welcome to the Bulletin. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm really grateful to have you join us for this conversation. You know, we're talking today, it's actually October 19th. It's been just shy of two weeks since these events began on October 7th. You know, it's been 12 days. How have the attacks, the responses, good and bad around the globe, how have they affected your congregation? What's happening in your community right now? Well, let's start with the horrific aspects of not just the original day of the attack, the Simchat Torah pogrom or Simchat Torah war that broke out on this usually very joyous Jewish holiday, but all that has followed. We have seen unspeakable acts that we as Jews have tended to associate with the Holocaust. We have seen Jews mowed down as if by the Einsatzgruppen. We have seen Jewish babies murdered. We have seen Jewish bodies burned. And then, immediately after the news came of what had occurred, we see parallels to Holocaust denial. We see constant online minimizations or denials of actual video. The striking thing is that the Nazis, as many have recently noted, the Nazis tried to cover up what they were doing. But this was being streamed online by Hamas, and it's still being denied. And then what we saw unfold just in the last 48 hours was a whole other specter from the history of anti-Semitism, which is a blood libel 
unfolding before our eyes in real time, an entire story fabricated in which it was claimed and in which members of Congress, knowing it wasn't true, continued to claim that Israel had struck a hospital, even though no aspect of that story was true. And premier media institutions, uh, first and foremost amongst them the New York Times, went with that right away. So we have the most horrific aspects from the history of anti-Semitism unfolding before us all in, in the last two weeks, all happening again. The inspiring aspect has been seeing the resiliency of the state of Israel, how they've come together, how they're supporting each other, and how they have inspired Jewry around the world. Mm-hmm. So this has been, in a strange way, simultaneously, one of the darkest periods in recent Jewish history, and also one of the most inspiring periods in recent Jewish history. Mm-hmm. I live directly behind a synagogue here in Louisville, and starting on Sunday the 8th, there was a police car in the parking lot, and there's been a police car in the parking lot 24 hours a day, seven days a week ever since then. Is there a sense of fear and trepidation, a sense that we're on alert given what's happened? There's certainly a sense of that. We've had security, but of course we have security before. The truth is, Mike, as a traditional Jew, I don't use electricity on the Sabbath or on holidays. So the only reason I knew of what had occurred two weeks ago in Israel is because our security guards get an alert Hmm. anytime anything happens in Israel. That's part of the way they are alerted. So it was already taken for granted that if something is happening in Israel, they need to know. So we live with that posture. What the community is feeling is, of course, first and foremost, deep, deep pain. Concern, because we all have friends, relatives, loved ones who live in Israel and are now serving. We said a special prayer for the soldiers of Israel in the synagogue. We always say a prayer for for the soldiers of Israel, but we said a special prayer where we specifically added the names out loud of soldiers related to members of the congregation or close to members of the congregation. And it was a very long list. Hmm. Prayer took a long time. (laughs) And then, of course, what we feel is concern for the future of our own society here in America and as Jews within it, because what we see unfolding in certain aspects of America, first and foremost, the academy, is horrifying. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen in some of the premier academic institutions in America rallies that can only be described as reminders of Nuremberg, Mm -hmm. paradigms of mealy-mouthed moral relativism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I spoke about this in my community last week, and I said that I was struck in the midst of all the darkness and all the terrible news and all of the statements being put forward by so many presidents. I was struck by a video of an atmosphere that was anything but academic, which was a video of the Kansas City Chiefs game. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, And there they had a video of the moment of silence that took place at the game for those murdered in Israel. And then, in the midst rising out of the silence, one lone attendee cursed Hamas, using language Mm -hmm. that I won't repeat, but it was bleep Hamas. And then the crowd cheered. 
And it, it was a reminder of, thank God, an America that stands with Israel and stands against evil. And it struck me that in that moment, that one sports attendee in his colorful language had summoned more moral clarity than some of the leaders of some of the most important academic institutions in our land. Mm-hmm. And so there's pain, there's concern, there's rage, there's a deep desire to help. And then, of course, there's us witnessing what's unfolding, you know, at Columbia University, just right. 50 blocks up from where my synagogue is. And uh, an institution of which many of my own members and community leaders are alumni. Mm-hmm. The president of the university for which I'm privileged to work, Yeshiva University, Rabbi Ari Berman, whose son is serving right now in the Israeli army and will be serving in the forthcoming war. He went on cable news and just said, which should be obvious, he said, what has happened is morally sickening. Mm-hmm. And he said, I ask every university president to denounce this evil. Mm-hmm. But that request was not responded to in the spirit that Rabbi Berman hoped. And so we see all this unfolding, but it's not just that we see what's happening in Israel. We see what's happening right in front of our faces. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I saw that was really disturbing on this level was the the DSA rally in Times Square that took place the day after the events. And I remembered an essay that you wrote in 2018 for commentary. This was shortly after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. And you talked about how when someone dies, the Jewish custom is to say, maybe their memory be a blessing. But when a Jew is murdered, the proper custom is to say, may God avenge their blood. And you wrote this. Let me, let me read this. You said, if we're able, if autopsies do not intervene, we bury murdered Jews in the clothes soaked with the blood that was shed. The intent in part is to highlight the fact that they've died because they were Jews and to inspire constant recollection of their murder, to inspire eternal outrage on the part of the Jewish people and on the part of God himself, to mark the memory of the murdered as a blessing without speaking of just and righteous vengeance, is to treat them as anyone else who may have died. It's to forget the fact that they died before their time and that their lives were cruelly cut short because of the people and faith to which they belonged. I thought of that in the days afterwards because I think there's a sentimentalism that makes us long for, makes us want to be the kind of people who can say, we need to move towards peacemaking, we need to move towards reconciliation, we need to move towards, you know, and obviously that's the language that very much permeates a lot of the politics right now around all of this. But particularly when people are talking in the language of like justice, like social justice, Part of the language of justice is actual justice. Yes. Talk about that distinction, particularly yeah. that distinction between may their memory be a blessing and God avenge their blood serving your, yes. your congregation. So on the immediate email that I sent out when the holiday was concluded and I was able to go online, the email that I wrote concluded with that phrase in Hebrew, Hashem yikom damam, may God avenge their blood. It's striking that I wrote that article in 2018 because after the Pittsburgh massacre, I did not see a lot of people using that phrase. And so I wanted to write an article explaining why, because I found it viscerally painful when people were only saying about those Jews murdered in Pittsburgh, may their memories be a blessing, as if you know they had just died peacefully of old age in their bed. And so I wrote that piece to explain that. Now I'm seeing, both in Hebrew and English, that phrase, may God avenge their blood. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
I'm seeing it in Israel, I'm seeing it in America, I'm seeing it in Hebrew, I'm seeing it in English. And of course, to use that phrase is to speak of justice, and it's to proclaim that the God of justice is not neutral in this battle between good and evil. One of the most terrifying aspects of the horror and the evil that we saw made manifest was that it reminds us of what is taken, as it were, as the first anti-Semitic assault on Jews just for the fact that they were Jews, which is Amalek's attack on the people of Israel following the Exodus. Because what God says there in denouncing the evil that is Amalek, what's highlighted there is, as the Bible says in Exodus, and it emphasizes this in Deuteronomy as well. And the phrase in Deuteronomy is, in Hebrew, that it's specifically targeted, not those that the killing of whom might have helped Amalek in a military campaign. It targeted the weak. It targeted the stragglers. And the point is, of course, that Amalek was not the first enemy that Israel faces in the Bible. It had just been enslaved for several hundred years by Egypt. But Egypt had a utilitarian motivation, of course, in its twisted morality of persecution. Mm -hmm. Egypt, of course, was evil, but what it sought was a utilitarian end. As Pharaoh says, you seek to enslave Israel lest they rise up in revolution, etc. And that also was evil, and that evil was undone. But Amalek is taken as an assault on Israel qua Israel, mm -hmm. just a hatred for God's covenantal people. And what they strike is not a military target. What they strike is not soldiers. They struck the weak. And that's what we see here. We see babies being murdered, a pregnant woman and her child being murdered. It's nauseating to even speak of it, of course, but we have to speak of mm -hmm. it. When the Allied forces came upon the concentration camps, General Eisenhower ordered the soldiers serving under him to come see what the Nazis had done. Mm -hmm. And his phrase was something like, if they didn't know until now what they were fighting for, at least now they will know what they are fighting against. Mm -hmm. And we use the phrase, may God avenge their blood, specifically for those murdered because they were Jews, and we thereby join their murders to the murders of God's covenantal people as God's covenantal people, all the way in the past, all the way to Amalek, mm -hmm. in order to cry out to God for justice, but also to say that this is an ancient hatred, that these villains have now joined the other enemies of God's people. But that means that God is their enemy, that God is not neutral in this battle. And to bury those murdered, not in the usual burial shrouds that we bestow on those that died in their beds, but in the bloodied garments in which they were murdered, is to hearken all the way back to the original murder and to God's statement to Cain, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Mm. And so we bury them in their blood, quite literally, so that their blood cries out to God from the ground.
May God avenge their blood. Hmm. What do you make of the fact that it took maybe a week for the conversation to shift away from in the media, in the political landscape, to shift away from the horror of what happened to the narrative being, well, what about the citizens of Gaza? You mentioned this New York Times story that all evidence suggests, including from the Pentagon, misfired the parking lot of a hospital in Gaza. It was immediately publicized as an IDF airstrike and that it killed 500 people. None of that seems to be true. None of that seemed to be true within six hours. It almost seems like there's a, it's an uphill climb to keep at the center why there's a war right now. I'm curious how you think of th- those shifts. Yes. Where the conversation shifted is not with the focus on civilians. I think the anti-Israel media was going to be focused on that in an unfair way about Israel immediately. Hmm. Where the conversation shifted was to a genuine blood libel when the media saw the opportunity to engage in such a libel. And here we have to understand, I think, the theological essence of anti-Semitism. There was a, a really good piece in your magazine yesterday. The article in Christianity Today cited a quote that I quote all the time, which is by the uh, Christian American writer Walker Percy, who said something like, when you meet a Jew, right. it's important to ask not just why are there Jews here, but why are there not Hittites yeah. here? When the Hittites were a powerful empire in the Middle East, when the Jews were a tiny and weak people, when you meet a Jew on the streets of London or New York, it is remarkable. Show me one Hittite in New York City. The Jewish people are a miracle. Their story is a miracle. And what anti-Semitism essentially is, and there are several good pieces on this by my friend Rob Nicholson mm-hmm. from the Philos Project. The way Rob puts it is that anti-Semitism is part of chosenness. And so what it tries to do is it tries to take chosenness and turn it on its head mm-hmm. and blame the Jews for all the world's ills. It's a hatred of Jewish eternity. Mm-hmm. In other words, what drives the anti-Semite is the sentiment, why won't these people die already? Right. And the belief that somehow they can be the instruments of the destruction where all others have failed. Mm -hmm. And so what is a blood libel? Blood libel originally was the claim, the horrific claim that originated almost a thousand years ago in England and then spread throughout the world. You find it in both the Christian and the Muslim world that Jews use the blood of non-Jews so they'll libel claims in their matzah. Mm -hmm and what is used at the Passover Seder. Mm-hmm. And this blood libel is the perfect embodiment of what anti-Semitism is. It takes a symbol of the miracle of Jewish history, the matzah, the unleavened bread of the Exodus, and turns it into a symbol of purported Jewish perniciousness. Mm-hmm. And what struck me, I always knew this, Mike, but what struck me this week, is that the state of Israel is the new matzah, Hmm. because it is a living miracle. Rationally, the state makes no sense that a people is reborn on its land, speaking the language it spoke thousands of years ago in that very same land. Hmm. And so, anti-Semitism in this 
in today's day and age is focused first and foremost on the greatest embodiment of this miracle. It's a hatred of Jews, but it's also at its essence a hatred of the Jewish God. Mm -hmm. And so what you saw, as many noted online, when Hamas, I mean, it sounds so ludicrous to even say it, when the quote-unquote Gaza Health Ministry, which is Hamas, <laughs> right. announces that 500 are dead because a hospital was, so they claim, struck, even though there was no strike, there was no hospital hit, and there weren't 500 dead. We don't know how many died. What you saw was, as it were, the giddy relief of the media of now they had an opportunity to take this matzah, to take this miraculous symbol, and turn it again toward their pernicious meme mm -hmm. that somehow they could paint Israel as a villain. That was a shocking moment to me. I'm not shocked at all that there are student groups marching for Palestine. I understand the way the left-wing politics of that narrative would be kind of baked in. But to literally see terrorists on the flyer... <laughs> was kind of took my breath away. Yes. Do you feel shocked? Do the people you're talking to feel shocked by the extent of it at all? I'm surprised that they're surprised. Sure. For example, when Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, wrote online how shocked he was where Harvard students were at this point, I thought to myself, really? Mm -hmm. You've been intimately familiar with this, with what's taking place in the academy. You're not someone, an outsider, who suddenly sees something happen. The terrifying thing, Mike, is that this is all stemming from curriculum that they're being taught. Mm -hmm. And the curriculum is not just teaching them to hate the Jewish state. The curriculum is teaching many of these students to hate the American founding, mm -hmm. and therefore to hate America. America is not necessarily where other countries in the West are. Mm -hmm. And I think, thank God a very, very large majority of this country supports Israel in this battle against evil. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what happens when elite institutions have become what they are? Yeah. And the people that are matriculating there are, some of them are who they are. Yeah. Where there will be a wake-up call, I think, will be among some Jews in America thinking about, where should I send my kid to school? Right. And maybe the undergraduate institution that I always had ambitions for a child to attend, maybe I'm approaching this wrong. And maybe I shouldn't spend, some might be thinking, hundreds of thousands of dollars for my child to go to a institution where some of the professors will seek to teach the students to hate the Jewish state, but to hate this country too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're already seeing donors, you know, pulling money, pulling pledges. That's actually been one of the heartening. Yeah. That's actually, the two, the two things that are relatively new are those things that you're saying. Yeah. People taking this, donors taking a stand. But then, even more interestingly, people taking a stand and saying, okay, if you want to stand in Harvard Yard or in the quad in Columbia and wear a paraglider image and openly support those that murdered and beheaded babies, we're going to take a record of who you are so that when you apply for a job, that's going to be written down. Right. Now, by the way, you had academics then denouncing that as violence. In other words, right. the woke left has basically refused to live up to any one of its 
sacred principles. Mm-hmm. Originally, there was silence is violence. And now you have statements where evil is not being denounced. Mm-hmm. You had a statement that we need to make the campus as comfortable for everybody so that everybody feels it's a safe space. Well, Jews don't feel these institutions are a safe space. And we hear speech is violence, <laughs> right? Yeah. But what they're not actually willing to denounce is actual violence. Right. But you will be seeing this more and more. Yeah. People will begin to fight back. That's new. Yeah. I can't help but think that there's something to the fact that we have elevated, you know, speech is violence, emotional harm is violence. In doing that, you've abstracted violence so much in the milieu of those elite institutions that real violence is itself viewed as an abstraction. There's like a paternalism from a lot of people who are like, this is just the overflow of rage from oppression. You know, these people can't help themselves. I mean, it's a very weird sort of dehumanizing thing that gets done that robs people of agency. That's exactly right. When they're making decisions to go kill and murder. I think that that only works when violence itself has become such an abstraction in our minds. We don't actually even know how to process, just to parrot Ross Douthat. I mean, it's a decadence thing. Like, it's a pure decadence thing to sit on the campus of an elite institution, wave a Taliban flag, literally people waving Taliban flags or LGBTQ activists marching for Palestine. That makes absolutely zero sense in the real world. But I don't think people are living in the real world. They're living in these sort of categorical abstractions. And it's the only way to justify it. The discourse in so much, in certain aspects of North society, have removed moral agency in general. A C.S. Lewis somewhere has a wonderful quote where he says, I'm sick and tired of this modern notion that it's anyone's fault except our own. It's our leader's fault. It's the way we were raised. It's so on. Everyone is responsible except us. And I think it's important to say in this context, as we discuss how we got to where we got, that in contrast to many that speak about Hamas and Gaza as if they just went in and took over a population, they were voted into office in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Israel pulled out of Gaza and the legislature there, Hamas won, that those elections. And then they seize total power. So a way of thinking about this is that it's very similar to what happened in Nazi Germany. Germany voted the Nazis into office. Then yes, they took total power and waged war on humanity, really. Yeah. But first and foremost on the Jewish people. That's, that's what Gaza is mm-hmm. right now. And by the way, the, the reason why the Palestinian leader in Judea and Samaria is serving whatever it is, like the 18th year of his four-year term, Mm -hmm. is because they don't want to have another election there because they believe that Hamas would be voted into office there. There's good polling data on what's going on in there. Hamas's approval rating is between 60 and 70 percent. And we know that a very large majority of the populations in both Gaza and Judea and Samaria support attacks on Israeli civilians. Israel is going to distinguish and do everything that it can to minimize Mm -hmm. civilian casualties. But it's important in our moral discourse to not speak of how we got where we got to, as if 
Hamas is just this tiny group that took over as if the populace had nothing to do with it at all. And there you see that moral confusion. Mm-hmm. It's just willful blindness to the situation in the Middle East. Let me wrap up with just a couple quick questions about what's happening here at home. You've written a lot about the founding and about the meaning of America, like what our nation is really all about. And I really commend our readers to look at that. It's beautifully written and really interesting who we are as a country. Like, How does this moment reflect on, for good or ill, who we are as a country? And what's the proper response to this kind of speech when it's exposing such an ugly underbelly? So let me just say first that seeing the situation of traditional Jews and Christians in other Western democracies that care less about free speech, I am not in favor of limiting free speech in America. Because if you take a look at what free speech is for traditional Christians in, let's say, Canada, this is not where we want to be as Jews and Christians traditional Jews and Christians in America. I think the way to fight against it is what I described before, to show that there are consequences to people saying what they believe. And the left will complain and say, oh, but I thought you don't believe in cancel culture, this and that. And of course, we know very well that these academic institutions would have no problem with the job prospects of someone participating Mm -hmm. in a Klan rally being hurt. And this just seems to be a statement that it doesn't matter as much from their perspective if someone is celebrating the death of Jews. Whereas, of course, celebrating violence against any human being in the image of God, of whatever race, of whatever creed, is evil. And so I'm not in favor of limiting free speech. I think what we need to take a hard look at is What is the state of the academy right now? Why is the government giving an immense amount of funding to institutions that have such moral rot at its core? And most importantly, how are we educating the next generation? I want to recommend to your your listeners, there's an amazing speech and I hope to publish something about this, that was delivered by the late Justice Scalia. And I think this was the greatest speech of his career. It has nothing to do with originalism. It has nothing to do with jurisprudence. It was a speech he gave uh, at a Holocaust memorial ceremony mm-hmm. in the Capitol Rotunda. And he spoke there about visiting, I think, Dachau, of the concentration camps and the impact it made on him. And then he said, my message will not be complete if you do not understand. The Holocaust took place in one of the most advanced, cultured, and intellectual countries in the world. And then he went on to describe effectively how if anyone had to predict which country would be the dominant country intellectually in the 20th century, if you made that prediction in the 1920s, You would have said Germany, all the cutting edge in physics and philosophy and culture and art and music and so forth. And then he quoted, I think, John Henry Newman, knowledge is not virtue. Those are two separate things. And then Scalia, again, this was supposed to be a speech focused on the Holocaust. He turned personal. And he said, 
this question is of such importance to me because I am now deciding where my mm-hmm. child should go to school. How much value we place, um, he basically says, the education and so forth. And concluded by saying something like, to remember the Holocaust is to seek to ensure that this never happens again. And the only way to do that is to perpetuate inviolable codes of conduct. And in the West, he said, we receive these codes from the Jews. America was founded on a notion of inviolable human rights. As my friend, the late chief rabbi of Britain, my Jonathan Sachs, used to always point out, there's a reason why two of the other major revolutions in modernity in the name of rights in France and in Russia ended in tyranny, and the American one did not. It's because those other two revolutions were founded entirely on secular philosophy. Whereas for the founding, the Bible played a profound role. And and what it gave to the American idea is that there is something higher, someone higher than the state that is the guarantor of human preciousness. It's in the name of this notion that the American Revolution was launched. It's in the name of this notion that slavery was abolished in America. And it's in the name of this notion that civil rights was fought for in America. Now we have academic institutions, many of whose students and many of whose scholars have turned once again to, I mean, secular is a, is a strange name for it. We're talking about postmodern or even neo-pagan thought. And that's what we're seeing here. And so the question is, what does that mean? I'm not saying our children shouldn't consider where they go to for law school or for med school and so forth. These might be the right places for them. But this is Mm -hmm. what the wake-up call has to be. How are we cultivating our future leaders? The solution is not to undo the freedoms of our constitution. The question is how to perpetuate what the American idea is in the first place. How do we ensure the perpetuation of the American idea and its biblically rooted vision? That, I think, is the seminal question of our age. And only such an America will remain America. And, of course, only such an America will also continue to see a force for righteousness and freedom in a Jewish state that is fighting barbarism on behalf of itself and on behalf of civilization and the free world on the other side of the world. So the stakes are very high. Mm. Stakes are very high indeed. But what's happening now should be a wake-up call, not just for Jews, but for all Americans of faith that love this country. Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for joining us here on The Bulletin. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will be back on Thursday. Thanks for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper, Clarissa Mall, and Matt Stevens. Post-production by David Lachance. Graphic design by Rick Schecks. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our regular episode. This episode was brought to you in part 
by just these guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know? This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.